come hang with you guys. Um, you can't you can't plan for a flu, but I'm so excited. Sorry if I'm delirious. I'm on a lot of medication right now. So, uh, I, but we're gonna have a great time. This church is amazing. The, the the pastoral staff, the atmosphere, the servant leaders, the worship team, the the people just getting to talk to people afterwards. Last service, it's just amazing what God's doing here and. Um, I'm really excited to be here. Turn with me to Romans 15 verse 13 for our text today. And really, just so you know, I'm a one-trick pony. Like, my whole message is hope. I spend all my life giving different variations of the same idea and ideal that's so sticky. And that's the message of hope because really, like, even the seeming most obscure texts in the Bible um, were put in there to give you hope. Like, like, let me give you a case in point. Esther. Why is the book of Esther in the Bible? It's a play. The name of God's not even mentioned once. And when God is apparently absent, he's not. And you look at this play, and then you see, like, Ruth. Like, why is Ruth in there? Ruth is like a Nicholas Sparks movie. It's, it's four chapters of this woman named Ruth falls in love with Boaz, and uh, they get married and then have kids. And she uncovers his feet, which was like a flirtatious overture, and then they they get married and have a bunch of kids and grandkids. It's like, why is that story in there? Well, when you dig a little deep, you're like, okay, I get Esther. It's a play about how like almost like a pre-incarnation symbolism of Hitler when the anti-Semite Haman was trying to destroy the Jewish people. And he hung on the very noose whereby he was trying to kill Mordecai. And Esther was born for such a time as this to save the Jewish people. And it's sort of this narrative art culmination of how God had his hand on the nation of Israel from the very beginning and uh, how he used Esther to save that nation. Okay, I get that. But Ruth, like what is Ruth doing there? Why is Ruth in the Bible? Now, clearly, the hermeneutic of Pauline theology is that the Bible was written with the express teleologic purport and design of giving you hope. So Romans 15, verse 4 says, now these, in fact, if you're already in Romans 15, you might as well look at this. Uh, verse 4 says, now these things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. So there are 1,000... 189 chapters in the Bible, 66 books written by 40 different authors, 14 of which were written by Paul the Apostle. Now, Paul would often write from prison because he got canned more than tuna. And Paul in this text says the reason we wrote the scriptures was to give you hope. That's why we wrote it, to give you hope. So uh, out of the 14 books of the New Testament that Paul wrote, he says, you have to understand we wrote this to give you hope. By the way, it's through the patience and comfort. Look at those two words, patience and comfort of the scriptures. The word patience in Greek is hupomoni. Everyone say hupomoni. And that literally means triumphant fortitude. Uh, it means that you don't only sit down and bear tribulation, you rise up, stand up, conquer tribulation, and convert its very nature so that you can take situations that are painful and you convert them into pain fuel that drive you on toward your destiny. Because pain either has the power to break you or it is the power that makes you unbreakable. What it is depends on who you are. And when you know that pain makes you stronger, tears make you braver, heartbreak makes you wiser, you can thank your past for a better future. We count it all joy when we fall into various and sundry trials and tribulations because Paul said in Romans 5, we glory in tribulation because tribulation produces patience, hupomoni. Patience produces experience, experience produces hope, and hope never maketh the shame because the love of God spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So through patience, hupomoni, and comfort, Remember, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Comforter. The Comforter breathed on the Scriptures to give us hope. 
The word comfort uh, comes from two words, come, roots, root words. Come means with, fort means fortis, fort, fortitude, uh, fortress. It means strength. So comfort means with strength. So what the scripture should do is produce in us triumphant fortitude so that we go our way with strength, having hope in our hearts because he causes the lame to leap, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the dead to raise. He changes the game. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? So the scriptures are written to give you hope. Big stuff. But back to Ruth. It's like, I was thinking about this just a minute ago. Like, why is Ruth in the Bible? How does that story give me hope? It's just like a Nicholas Sparks four chapter love story. Like, what's it doing in there? Here's what's really amazing. The story of Ruth is a locus point and linchpin to understand the entire narrative arc of the whole sweeping story of Scripture from Abraham all the way to Revelation. You say, how so? Well, we have to go back to Genesis to understand. In the book of Genesis, we're told that Abraham went not knowing where he was going when he left his tribe. Now, why is that important? Nobody did that back then. You would cycle your recycled past by carrying on the blue-collar trade of your family. Now, some historians argue that the Bible is the only ancient document that esteems and speaks highly of blue-collar work. Jesus himself, scholars suggest, was a a construction worker, a carpenter, very close to uh, an ancient equivalent of our construction workers. So Abraham went not knowing where he was going, leaving his blue-collar family business, And he goes in search of a city whose builder and maker is God, a city with foundations. But he believed that despair did not run the order of the day. That uh, This is all depression or despair is. It's believing that tomorrow is going to be no different than today. But he would not recycle the cycle of his ancestors. He went in search of something new, adventures with God and squad. So he takes his family and they go in search of, of a new city. Now watch what happens. Abraham then is told by God to look up at the stars. Now, there are a lot of stars in space, 6,000 stars visible to the naked eye, more than 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Billions of other galaxies are known. There are more, watch this, stars in the universe than there are words or sounds ever uttered by all the humans to ever live in all of history. That's a lot. So he says, look at the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Hyperbolic drama to say you're going to have a lot of kids. Well, of course, Abraham and Sarah, when they hear this, they laugh because they're, you know, 99 and 89 a year before they're about to have a baby. It's like you would laugh, too, if you're 99 years old and you're going into Walmart, the maternity section, and you're like, "Uh, could I please, uh, where's your maternity section? I need some big clothes because I'm about to have a kid. Wait, you? You're 99. You're about to wear diapers, eat mush, and have no teeth. You're telling me you're going to have a baby who at the same time is going to wear diapers, eat mush, and have no teeth? It's like the circle of life Lion King going on here. So Abraham goes not knowing where he's going. He's called by God to have descendants as multitudinous as the stars. And yet, this is what this is amazing. They laugh when they hear this promise. But a year later, when God gave them the baby, the baby's name was Isaac. And the word Isaac means laughter. Why? Because God always gets the last laugh. You can laugh when God gives you a promise, but he's always going to get the last laugh. So you might as well laugh, laugh in joy rather than in mockery because God always fulfills his promises. So Abraham is told he's going to have all these kids, but he's told this tribe that he's about to give birth to is going to be unlike any other tribe. He said, Abraham, your tribe will be a blessing to the nations. Now that was unheard of. Back then, the ancient world was fraught with uh, blood feuds, purple 
blue spiral dynamics of uh, tribalism, the, the blood vendettas, like they would fight each other, these tribes would. Uh, so to say that your tribe was going to bless all the other tribes was absolutely, there was no category for it. It was unprecedented. That would be like telling, you know, LeBron James for the Lakers when he plays Steph in the Warriors to actually let them win. And like, imagine if LeBron gave the ball to Steph. He's like, here you go. And he actually gave him the game and said, please win. I'd like you to win. I want to bless you. You'd be like, that's just not how the game works. In the ancient world, tribes didn't bless each other. Tribes fought each other. In fact, the oldest law in recorded history is the Code of Hammurabi from Babylon. And Moses used it as well. It's the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, why did they say that? Well, so far from being barbaric, it was actually a mercy law. Because back in the ancient world, if you plucked out my eye, I would kill your entire tribe. It was escalation of violence. So an eye for an eye was limiting vengeance and it was the punishment should fit the crime. So why did they have to establish this law? Because it was very violent and brutal. Like the ancient world was very similar to like an inner city uh, gang territorial, you know, hierarchy of violence. Very, very brutal back then. So Abraham's told that he's going to be a tribe to bless all the other tribes. The problem is Abraham failed. You remember Abraham and his nephew Lot, part of the same tribe, they have their shepherds grazing in the fields. Watch this. Abraham and Lot's shepherds, remember they're a family. Abraham is the uncle, Lot is the nephew. Their shepherds start fighting. There's like, they're like, there's not enough land for the both of us. So Abraham said, Lot, you go one direction and I'll go the other direction. Abraham went to Canaan, the land flowing, flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Lot, where did he go? He went to Sodom and Gomorrah because it was more green. Now, I recently, actually two weeks ago, I taught uh, about this at Sodom and Gomorrah at the Dead Sea. It's, it's where the Dead Sea is now. And our tour guide actually believed that the Dead Sea was cursed because of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. A third of the Dead Sea's concentration is salt. I mean, it's just, there's no life there. And it's because, in her opinion, our tour guide, that God like cursed Sodom and Gomorrah and put the Dead Sea there. Uh, because you remember when Lot and his wife were watching fire come down on Sodom and Gomorrah, they left. Lot's wife turned back and turned into a pillar of salt, a symbol that there would be a salt dead sea in its place. Abraham then goes, pardon me, Lot then goes with his daughters to a cave. They're mourning the loss of everything. Lot gets drunk by his daughters. His daughters then have an incestuous relationship with Lot. The Bible's not rated G, but it's certainly entertaining. They get drunk. Lot's daughters have incestuous relations with their dad. Their dad, Lot, then has kids, and their kids are named the Moabites. Abraham, meanwhile, is in Canaan having his child, Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac then had Jacob, renamed Israel. Israel then had 12 children, 12 tribes, and thus the line of Israel was on one side, and the line of Moab came from Lot's side. But this was the same tribe. The problem is, not only were Lot and Abraham's shepherds fighting, this tribe was divided, a civil war, but for generations, the Moabites and the Israelites were mortal enemies. They were rivals. In fact, there's this story of Ehud, who was um, a left-handed man in the Bible. There are three left-handed people in the Bible. They all come from the tribe of Benjamin, the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. So all the left-handed people come from the right-handed tribe. 
And to be left-handed back then was considered to be a curse. So you did not want to be a southpaw back then. We were talking about yesterday how being a lefty now in sports is actually an advantage. But back then, it was considered a curse to be a southpaw. Which is why Ehud was able to sneak into the presence of Eglon. Who was Eglon? Eglon was a very fat man, the Bible says. Now, if the Bible says you're a very fat man, we're not talking about he needed to lose a few pounds. We're talking about a guy who had his own zip code. I mean, we're talking about like the body is a temple, but sometimes we add additions. We're talking about like exercise. No, thank you. How about extra fries? I mean, if, there, if we weren't meant to have midnight snacks, why is there a light in the fridge? I mean, we're talking about Jabba the Hut here. So Jabba, the Bible says his name was Eglon. Now, Eglon, the Bible teaches us, Eglon was the king of Moab. Moab was oppressing Ehud and the Israelites for 18 years. So you have the Moabites from Lot, the Israelites from Abraham. Ehud is an Israelite. Eglon is a Moabite. They fight. Remember, Ehud was able to sneak into the presence of Eglon and stab him. How did he, how did he bring a double-edged dagger through TSA security? Well, back then, usually what the palace guard would do is they would frisk your left hip. Why? Because if you're a right-handed guy, you draw across your body from your left hip. To be a southpaw was cursed. There's no use in checking the, the right hip. So apparently they didn't check his, his right hip as a southpaw. So he was able to sneak in and he stabbed Eglon and it did it like a DEFCON 1, Navy SEAL Team 6, Army Paratrooper, Recon, Chris Kyle, Marcus Luttrell, like American Sniper vibe, just like wipes him out as this elitist warrior. But here's what's interesting. His oddity was his commodity. So you got to own your oddness because the very thing that seemed to be his curse was actually a blessing reversed in disguise. And that enabled him to defeat Eglon. Ehud then goes his way and kills 10,000 lusty men of Moab, the Bible says. So the Israelites, the Moabites, they're fighting for generations. Remember, they're all part of the Abraham tribe. What was Abraham's calling? His tribe was to be a blessing to the nations. But so far from blessing all the nations, Abraham's tribe is fighting with itself. The Israelites and the Moabites, they both come from Abraham. They're, they're fighting one another. They're at war with each other until, enter Nicholas Sparks, Ruth comes onto the scene. Ruth falls in love with a guy named Boaz. Who was Ruth? A Moabite. Who was Boaz? An Israelite. They were not supposed to fall in love. You think Shakespeare came up with the Romeo and Juliet idea? No, these were two different classes. Ruth came from the wrong side of town. Like she came from across the river. Like you don't, you don't, you don't date people from that street. But Ruth and Boaz get married. They fall in love. Now watch this. They then bring the tribe back together. The Moabites and Israel, Abraham and Lot. They get married, bring the tribe back together just in time to have a kid named Obed who had a kid named Jesse, who had a kid named David. And that's how the story ends. So the tribe comes back together just in time to have King David, who then ruled over Israel and Moab, uniting the tribes. Then, a few generations after that, the son of David, Jesus, comes into Jerusalem. It's interesting Three miracles Jesus is said to have done in Jerusalem. One is raising from the dead, and the other two were healing the lame and the blind, or a paralyzed person and a blind person. Now, why is that interesting? Because they said to David, even the paralyzed and the blind could stop you when he was trying to come into Jerusalem to conquer the Jebusites. And so 
the lame and the blind didn't stop him, so too in the New Testament, Jesus healed the paralyzed and the blind, even they couldn't stop him from doing healing ministry. Amazing stuff. He comes into Jerusalem as the son of David, the anointed king, and through his message, all the tribes and all tongues come together to declare that he is the Lord. Revelation tells us every tribe, every tongue comes together to announce that the son of David is the king, all unified in one kingdom, all because... The son of David comes from David, who was the great grandchild of Ruth and Moab, Ruth and Boaz, bringing the Israelite Moabite tribe back together, hailing all the way back to Genesis, when Abraham was called to be a blessing to the nations, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hashtag no big deal, low-key world domination. There's the scriptures 30,000 feet up. I just gave you like an overview of the Bible right there. And we didn't even talk about that last service, so I don't even know where we're going. But... <laughs> I was just thinking about that up there, and I'm like, wow, this is cool stuff. So when you think of it this way, like the narrative arc of Scripture is so powerful because even the smallest moments, those books that seem like a throwaway book, Why is Ruth There?, is actually a focal point for putting all of the story together. Like, let me just give you one more example. Then we'll look at our text. I know we're covering a lot of Scripture, but since I'm here in Missouri, I've never been here before. We might as well just go ham. Here we go. There's one, actually, you know what, we're going to just pull an audible, play situation football, check with me football, here we go. Turn with me to Luke uh, 18. We actually already know, looked at Romans 15.4, to understand that all the scriptures were written to give us hope, Romans 15.4. But now I want you to turn with me to Luke 18, to see how all the scriptures, even the seeming throwaway verses, are there to give us hope. Pardon me, Luke chapter 8, Luke 8. It's good to see you guys. You guys doing good? Okay, cool. I'm so glad we get to hang out today. This is so fun. Would you guys all, since you're turning in your Bible, let's do a quick commercial break. Would you guys all say hi to my Instagram? You all look so beautiful. Hi, everybody. Hi, guys. I love Missouri. I love you guys. You guys are great. This is awesome. Cool. Okay, here we go. The the problem is I could blame this on the Dayquil, but I'm always delirious, so. (laughs) Luke 8, verse 1. Now, it came to pass afterward that he, Jesus, went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, apparently somebody counted, And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward. Everyone say Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward. And Susanna and many others who provided for him from their substance. Now, who would have thought Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward, would prove to be one of the most important characters in the Bible? You're like, Ben, I haven't even heard of Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward. Who is she? Watch this. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's going to every city and village preaching what? The glad tidings of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, Paul defined in three ways. He said it's righteousness. Everyone say righteousness. Peace. Everyone say peace. And joy in the Holy Ghost. Everyone say joy in the Holy Ghost. That's in the book of Romans. Paul defined it. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So let's just break those three things down really quick. Number one, righteousness. Have you guys ever seen Finding Nemo? You remember the turtle, uh, crush? He would go through the currents with his little whelp, 
and they would surf the currents. And what would they say? They would throw shakas with their flippers as they would surf the currents. These turtles in Finding Nemo. What did they say? Righteous! The surfer turtles from California. Righteous! And they would just surf the currents. That's what the kingdom of God is, Paul says. It's righteous! It's everybody bowing before the throne in Revelation. 17 of the 22 chapters on roughly 45 occasions, John the Revelator speaks of a throne in his apocalyptic literature. And everyone is saying, Righteous! And true are your judgments. That's the kingdom of God. Hindsight's twenty twenty. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. Sometimes in life, we don't understand why we're going through what we're going through. And it's really hard to find hope when we go through bad stuff. But looking back, we can always say, righteous. I see what you were doing there, Lord. I had to walk by faith and not by sight in the moment. But looking back, I've seen you've been faithful in my past. So now I'm going to be faithful about my future and fulfilled today. So, The kingdom of God is, number one, righteous. Number two, it is peace. Everyone say peace. Uh, Paul the Apostle said in the book of Colossians, let the peace of God rule your hearts. That word rule is the word umpire. In fact, some English translations render it that way. Let the peace of God umpire your heart. Paul would have been a big sports fan. Uh, They had the Asthminian Games in Corinth, the Panionian Games in Ephesus, the Olympic Games in Athens. Sports were all the rage back in Paul's day. And Paul used a lot of sports metaphors and analogies. A lot of times the foot race, because the foot race was the most popular sport back then, kind of like NFL or sadly NASCAR. But ultimately, Paul says, the peace of God should umpire your heart. Now, that word umpire is used of a ruling official or an umpire in one of the athletic games. A lot of people forget that sports were huge in Bible days in the New Testament time. So sometimes in life, like we're lacking hope because we don't know what decision to make. Should I go to this college or that school? Should I marry this person or that one? Should I take this career or that vocation? Should I raise my kid this way or that way? And a lot of times at the intersection, at the crossroads, you're like, what choice do I make? What did Isaiah say? You will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whether to the right or to the left. The peace of God, Paul said, let that umpire your heart, meaning... If you're faced with two choices and you don't know what decision to make, everyone might be telling you to take choice A, and it might seem logical and rational, but if you don't have a peace in your heart about it, the umpire's calling you out on the carpet. If, however, you take choice B, it might seem more scary, it might not even seem logical, but you just have a weird peace in your heart, the umpire's saying, safe, you're safe to make that decision. So Paul says the peace of God ruling in your heart, that's what the kingdom is. The kingdom is peace. It can actually give you wisdom regarding what choice to make based on the peace you have in your heart. And oftentimes the peace of God leads us to do the harder thing. Not always, but ultimately I should say the scarier stuff because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. But sometimes the peace of God might lead us to step out of a boat or fight a battle. But ultimately the peace of God rules our hearts. I'm going to go where the peace is. How good is God? He could have led us by our hates, but instead he leads us by our peace. And thirdly, not only is the kingdom of God not only is it oh perfect there's a two peace but number three it is joy everyone say joy in the holy ghost why because the holy ghost produces the fruit of joy oh we need more joy in our generation we need so much joy i love how the bible says in galatians 5 1 it is for freedom that you've been set free we were not set free to be more religious we were not set free to obey more rules we were set free to skate 
We were set free to eat gushers. We were set free to forgive people. We were set free to maximum send it to eternity and beyond. We were set free to throw punch the devil. We were set free to put to flight the forces of darkness. We were set free to stand at the gates of hell and redirect traffic. We are free, free, free. People are going through hell, but we're going to lead them to green pastures and still waters. And we're going to say, your, your fiery tribulation that you're going through was not meant to burn you. It forges you because God is a consuming fire who never burns what you are. He only burns what you are not. Oh, so ultimately we need joy, joy in the Holy Ghost. We count it all joy when we fall into fiery tribulations. Joy, joy, joy. So that's what Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the kingdom of God. That's what Paul defined the kingdom as. Righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Ghost. On earth, as it is in heaven, your will be done. Right here in all these villages and cities I'm preaching to, Jesus would say. Now watch what he does. As he's preaching these sermons, notice we're told certain women, verse 2, were following him. A lot of people think that Jesus just had 12 male apprentices. But actually, he had women disciples as well. And this was very iconoclastic for his age. Because sadly, in this archaic caveman era... Women were maltreated and mistreated. In fact, it was said that a Samaritan woman, some Jewish people said, had less value than a man's donkey. That's why Jesus had his longest public conversation with who? A Samaritan woman. And the rabbi said, if you prolong conversation in the street with a woman, you will in the end inherit Gehenna. In other words, you'll go to hell if you talk too long with a woman. So Jesus says, the longest conversation I'm ever going to have publicly is with a woman a Samaritan. And the Bible says the disciples were amazed that he spoke with a woman. It doesn't say they were amazed that he walked on water. It doesn't say they were amazed that he rose from the dead. It doesn't say they were amazed that he could feed 5,000 people with a kid's lunchable. It says they were amazed that he spoke with a woman. They're like, whoa, did you just do that for real? So Jesus was very, very ahead of his time in incorporating women. He has women apprentices. And what are they doing? Well, look at what verse 3 says. They're providing for him out of their substance. So they're the titans of industry, the movers and shakers. They're providing for Jesus fiscally and financially. So they're the administration. They're, uh, they're the tycoons of industry. These, these women he uses to, to fund his ministry as the admin uh, people who are bankrolling the whole operation. Now, one of these women who is providing for Jesus from her substance is Joanna. Everyone say Joanna. Joanna. The wife of Chuzza. Herod Stewart. Now, why is she one of the most important characters in the story? Let me tell you why. Joanna was married to Chuzza. Chuzza was working for Herod. Herod did not like Jesus. In fact, there were multiple Herods that Jesus had to encounter. There was Herod the Great. When Jesus was a kid, you remember he was taken to Egypt because Herod the Great was killing all the babies under two. Jesus as a baby fled to Egypt, came back to Israel, passed through water the Jordan River to wander 40 days in a wilderness. So to the Jewish people, he's retelling Israel's story, were taken to Egypt as a baby country. They then passed through water the Red Sea to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, is making these incredible parallels. So Jesus is in Egypt fleeing Herod the Great's wrath. Why? Because the magicians from the east, everyone thinks there were three, but the Bible doesn't actually tell us. However many of these magicians from the east, these astrologers who are like reading star signs, they start worshiping Jesus and they give him frankincense, myrrh, and gold. Now, to give somebody gold was to admit they were a king. Gold was a king's medal. So Jesus 
is it, they're admitting, is king even as a baby. Now watch this. Herod doesn't like that. Herod's the king of the Jews. So for them to give Jesus gold, they're saying he's the king of the Jews, so Herod tries to kill Jesus. Jesus escapes in Egypt. He then comes back to Israel. He grows up. Now he's in his 30s. Jesus in his 30s is doing his ministry, and Herod Antipas, who was one of the four successors of Herod the Great, remember this is decades later, Herod Antipas was one of Herod the Great's successors, because you can't have success without a successor. Herod Antipas sees that Jesus, watch this, is going to every village and city preaching about the kingdom of God. He doesn't like this. Why? Because he has a kingdom. So for Jesus to preach about a different kingdom is a threat to his throne. This is a political plot and intrigue that Herod Antipas does not like. So what does Herod Antipas try to do? He also tries to kill Jesus. Um, And Again, that makes sense politically why he would do that. When Jesus was crucified, what did the sign above his head say he was crucified for? King of the Jews. In how many languages? Three. Latin, which was the language of politics. Greek, which was the language of philosophy. Aristotle, Zeno, Socrates, Plato, uh, Alexander the Great, Epicurus, Epictetus, etc. Greek, the language of philosophy. And Hebrew, which was the language of Old Testament religion, the Jewish people. So when he was crucified as king of the Jews, it was also saying, oh yeah, by the way, he's king of politics, he's king of religion, and he's king of philosophy as well. All three of those languages represented that. Herod doesn't like this. Herod Antipas says, you can't be preaching about a kingdom, calling yourself the king of the Jews. So what does he do? He tries to kill Jesus. Jesus is warned. This is one of my favorite stories. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Herod is trying to kill you. Jesus literally replied, go tell that fox that I will continue preaching and healing and on the third day I will rise again. I will accomplish my goal. Now to call somebody a fox in the ancient world was was trash talk. Like if you were talking about somebody's greatness, you called them a lion. That's why Jesus was called the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's why we lionize people today. If you called them a fake, pretender, imposter, or poser, you would say they're a fox. That was the biggest slam in the ancient world. That's why when I play basketball, I like to trash talk a little bit and I just say WWJD. Be that as it may, I'm joking. Just in case you thought I was serious. Okay, so Jesus calls Herod a fox. Remember, on another occasion, a man came to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And what did Jesus say? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The foxes represented Herod, The birds represented Rome. What was the Roman national symbol? The eagle. But I, the son of man, have nowhere to lay my head. What was he saying? My kingdom is not like the avarice and greed and violence of Herod and Caesar. My kingdom is not of this world, but it is for this world. As you are not of this world, but you are in this world. And unlike Herod and Caesar, I'm not going to conquer the earth by bathing the world in the blood of my enemies. I'm going to conquer the earth by bathing my enemies in the world with my own blood. And he does this huge thing with his whole kingship. But then here's what happens. Herod tries to kill Jesus. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus called him a fox. Watch. Herod is trying to kill Jesus. But who's on Herod's payroll? Chuzza. Chuzza is overseeing Herod's familial estate. Now, Now Herod would have been the richest man in all of Israel as far as his estate was concerned. He had the wealthiest household in all of Israel. He was the Bill Gates of the ancient world. 
So he obviously has a big staff. Obviously, he wasn't looking at his books closely enough. Because he hires on Shuzza to be the steward over his household. He's overseeing Herod's familial estate. That's what Shuzza does. Now, Shuzza has a wife named Joanna. Verse 3 tells us. Joanna and Shuzza evidently get tired of all the lavish banquets and the red carpet. So Joanna starts following a penniless teacher from Nazareth named Jesus, the son of David. She follows him around, and verse 3 tells us she's one of the women providing for Jesus out of her substance. In other words, she is paying Jesus, uh, paying for Jesus' ministry. She's funding Jesus' ministry, which means that Herod was trying to kill Jesus, but little did he realize that Joanna was paying Jesus, and Joanna was getting provided for by Chuzza, and Chuzza was getting provided for by Herod. So not only was Herod um, not able to kill Jesus, but he was accidentally paying Jesus' bills. <laughs> so there's like one little throwaway verse that people just read over. Oh, cool, Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, was paying for Jesus' ministry. Do you see this whole kingdom thing at work here? Like Jesus' kingdom is, it works in such a way that what the enemy means for evil, the Lord means for good. And I'm going to close with this. I give an entirely different message from first service. But here's what I'm going to say. Do you have enemies in your life who are trying to take away your hope? Do you have infighting in your family when you were meant to be a blessing to the nations? Do you read the Bible and you see all these promises, but they seem to be eclipsed by all your problems? Can I encourage you that just as Jesus found in the life of Joanna, Chuzza, and Herod, just as Lot and Abraham, David, the son of David, Ruth, Boaz, the Moabites, Israelites, just as all these Bible stories show us, written to give us hope, when things seem to be falling apart, they're actually falling into place. God works all things together for the good, not just the good things. I'm not saying all things are good, but I'm saying all things work together for the good. And the truth of the matter is, you might have Herods in your life who are trying to attack you, or the Moabites who are trying to oppress you. But listen, if people are fighting against you, remember, if people are talking about you behind your back, they're behind you for a reason. And God doesn't take you deeper to drown you, he just knows your enemies can't swim. See the Egyptian charioteers for more info. Psalm 14 says the enemy is under your feet. The enemy is your footstool. So if you want to say something to your enemy, you better write it on your sneakers because he's under your feet. Tigers don't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. Your haters are your motivators. So suddenly you're joyful no matter what you're going through. Like, wow, I know, God, that these scriptures, these stories were written to give me hope. And I am part of this great succession, this march in advancing your kingdom into this generation. And my heart for you is that you would walk away with so much hope, knowing that you should not judge the rest of your life on this current season. That you should not think your story has ended because you're in a dark chapter. That was the mistake of Job. Job, he seemed like the most depressed character ever, but what scholars tell us is that his suffering was only nine months long. And Job 42 says that he enjoyed his great-great-grandkids for 140 years. Nine months of suffering, 140 years of enjoying his great-great-grandkids with double for his trouble, with all his blessings. What is that saying? Don't judge the rest of your life on this current season. Nine months feels like a long time, but it's nothing compared to the weight of glory it's working in you, the 140 years of enjoying your great-great-grandkids with double the blessings. Although your trouble doubled, you get double for your trouble. As the story of Job shows us, because Zechariah 9.12 says, Turning to the strongholds, you prisoners of hope, even today do I declare that I will restore double to you. 
So the problem is we compare the rest of our life on this current season. We're going through a bad season. So we say, I guess this is the end for me. But let me encourage you that everything is going to be okay in the end. So if it's not okay, it's not the end. It's okay if you're not okay. It's just not okay if you stay that way. It might seem like generations, man, the infighting. We're missing our destiny of the tribe of Abraham. Or the king himself is plotting against me. God's like, I'm not stressed at all. In fact, I'm sleeping. Do you want to sleep too in the storm? Because we're all going to get to the other side. The storm didn't come to stay. It came to pass. You might as well enjoy where you're at on the way to where you're going. We need hope. 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 So, my friends, as we go our way, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be absurdly hopeful. That's what this generation needs. People who are so hopeful, they're so filled with joy. They have so much peace because they know that God is righteous. Be an embodiment and personification of the kingdom of God in Missouri, even as it is in heaven. The Lord needs, the Lord is looking for, the Lord wants, I should say, people who will say, I'm going to be a hope dealer. I'm going to live with hope because we're the people who have gone through hell carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by the fire. We're the people who believe that wrong will be worsted. Right will triumph. We are baffled to fight better. We sleep to wake. We fall to rise. We might have hell around us, but we have the kingdom of heaven inside us because we have one on our team who's braver than Batman, stronger than Superman, more indomitable than Iron Man, more audacious than Ant-Man. His name is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who the Bible calls the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Emmanuel, Messiah, the Prince of peace, the son of God, the light of the world, the way, the truth, the life, the line of the tribe of Judah, the door for his sheep, the shepherd who lays down his life for his lambs, the vine who gives fruit to his branches, the word of God made flesh, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the resurrection and the life, the prince of the kings of the earth, the amen, the root of David, the man child, the beginning of God's creation, he who wields the bright and morning star, he who holds the double-edged sword, the captain of our salvation, the image of the invisible God, and the anchor of hope. So we're going to relax and sit back because every setback is a setup for a comeback. We're not going to tell our God how big our mountain is. We're going to tell our mountain how big our God is. And if we go through hell, we're not going to smell like smoke because like Abraham, Lot, Ruth, Boaz, David, Joanna, Chuzza, etc., all things work together for the good. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Lord, you're so good. We love you so much. And I just pray that you would help us to go our way, doling out and dealing out joy and hope galore. Because we know that we are part of a big story that might not make sense while we're going through it. But we know that the God who calls us to it will bring us through it. And that we're going to look back with 20-20 hindsight and say, wow, everything you did was righteous, genius, and true. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? So, some of the stuff we've been talking about today, about hope, I actually wrote a book that I'm super passionate about that's coming out in March. And um, we're selling pre-orders today. If you'd like to just dive more deeply into this content, um, that some of the stuff we covered today. So there's bookmarks in the back. If you buy the bookmark, you'll actually buy the book. So when the book comes out, it'll get shipped right to you. None of the money goes to me. The royalties just go right back into the ministry. 
uh, I just want you to get this message. So if you'd like to pre-order the book, I'll be back there writing little hope notes without shaking your hand because I don't want to get you sick. But uh, if you'd like to do that, I'll be back there right after uh, the service is done. And um, may we just praise the Lord and say, oh, goodness, he's so good. Isn't he genius? Like, I know we were only able to scratch the surface and skim off the top and not even necessarily plumb the deeps. We were able to go treble, but not totally base because there's just so much in Scripture that's so brilliantly put together. But when you study these Scriptures, it's, it's so encouraging to know that the same author of that book will be the finisher of our faith. And he's writing all of our days in his book, Psalm 139 says. He is the author of your story and the finisher of your faith. So let's worship together.